Welcome to Passionately His, a ministry of Dr. Jeff Loach and St. Paul's Church in Nobleton, Ontario, Canada. Coming up, we'll hear a message from God's Word. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and check us out on YouTube at the link in the description where you'll find past services and messages that will inform your mind and form your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's this week's message. One of the challenges of preaching Lectio Continua, that is, through books of the Bible, is that skipping challenging passages is not an option. I could have taken a break from the book of Acts for the whole season of Advent and the season of Christmas, and we will do so after today. But I really think that the difficult passage we're going to look at this morning fits with the overarching theme of the season, because as you will see from the various emails and bulk third-class letters that you are receiving these days, uh, perhaps above all other months, society sees this as a season of giving. Why? Well, though secular culture has largely dropped the true meaning of the season, its legacy remains. The month of December has been characterized as a season of giving solely because of the celebration of Christmas, the great self-giving of God in the incarnation, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people today think that giving happens at this time of year because of the story of Santa Claus. And while that may be true, most people fail to look behind the scenes at the origin of the Santa Claus story, right? What we know about Santa today, at least visually, uh, largely comes from the Coca-Cola company in the 1930s. But the real Saint Nick was a real person who loved and served the Lord Jesus Christ, apparently had a great right hook, uh, because there was a fight that went on in the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, and, and he stood up for orthodoxy against Arius who, to the point that he actually knocked him cold, apparently. That, that may or may not be a rumor. But Nicholas was best known for being a giver, specifically to those who had need. Uh, you can look up the details of that for yourself later on. But the heart of the giving narrative at this time of year stems back to the gift God gave us in the birth of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no greater gift that could ever be given. Make no mistake about that. God has taken the initiative in being generous. The early Christians understood this, and that's why they had a culture of generosity within their nascent community of faith. The early Christians figured this out. In Acts 4, the believers got their first taste of persecution And the response of the church was to pray for courage. And as they prayed for courage, the place where they were meeting shook, as if God were offering his own amen to their prayer. Then Luke says, in Acts 4.31, they preached the word of God with boldness. Well, what do we see next? Let's read Acts chapter 4, verse 32, to chapter 5, verse 11. We'll start with the first sentence. All the believers were united in heart and mind. All the believers were united in heart and mind. You, you might be too if you just prayed and the ground shook. 
Verse 32 says that all the believers were united in heart and mind. It was a, a comprehensive unity. It's not the first time we've seen that in the book of Acts, right? When the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit uh, moved and the ground shook. It's not the last time we're going to see this either. So unity must have been an important factor in the life of the early church. And what was the result of this unity? Luke continues, And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. They shared. Mi casa is su casa. My house is your house. Everything they had, they were willing to share. Some look at this verse and they think that it's the foundation of communism or socialism. But I don't think that's a fair statement because in the New Testament case, this is voluntary, not forced. We'll see that illustrated again for us in a moment. At the heart of their willingness to share was a deep unity that was centered on the gospel. Look at verse 33. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. It's, it's like an evangelism sandwich. Leave it to me to try and find a food analogy somewhere. But uh, it, what you've got here in verses 32 and 34 is about sharing with the needy, and in verse 33, you've got the apostles committed to sharing the gospel with the world. And through this, the church experienced the blessing of God. Verse 34, there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Isn't that astounding? The early church took care of their own to the point that selling, they would sell their property in order to ensure that a sister or a brother had a place to live and enough to eat. This was important because as followers of Jesus, they would no longer have had access to the Jewish system of welfare that took care of widows and orphans. The church had to take this on, and it did. And verses 36 and 37 give us a positive example of this. Uh, <clears throat> for instance... There was Joseph, the one, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Now, Barnabas will show up many times through the course of uh, the book of Acts, but this is his first appearance. His first, re first real name is Joseph, uh, but his nickname was Barnabas, Barnabas, the son of encouragement. So he was obviously known as an encourager. And the word at the root of his nickname is the same term Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit, who is promised in John 14, the paraclete, the comforter, the encourager. And to be called a son of was indicative of that person's character. Next time you start an invective with son of, remember that. So Joseph was obviously an encourager, so they called him the son of encouragement, Barnabas. And he did not hesitate to sell a field he owned, bringing the money to the apostles so those in need could be cared for. That's a positive example of the unity and the sharing that existed in the early church. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins with the word, but. So you know that the news isn't going to stay all that rosy. So here's a not-so-positive example. 
chapter 5, verse 1. But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. So Ananias and Sapphira sold some land. They gave to the apostles part of the proceeds, and they kept the rest. That word kept could be translated as pilfered or embezzled. Even though it was their own money, they were saying they were representing something else. This wouldn't have been a negative example had Ananias and Sapphira been upfront about it because they were not required or forced to sell the property or to give the money to the apostles. The problem was that they lied about it. The story continues. Verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. Peter discerned this not from a guilty look on his face. Peter discerned this by the Holy Spirit. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. After selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Seems pretty radical, doesn't it? Ananias' death could have been judgment from the Lord. Or it could have just been a natural reaction to being outed publicly. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? See, Peter gave Sapphira a chance to come clean, and she did not. Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the Spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. And instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church, you think? And everyone else who heard what had happened. It's the first, worst of the, the first use of the word church in the book of Acts, by the way. Now, having begun this message by saying it was about generous giving, some of you may think I'm going to tell you that if you don't give generously, you're going to fall down and die. I don't think that's the case, but I can't promise because some of you do have heart trouble. But that's not the path I'm going down. It's interesting that Luke includes this story in his chronicle of the life of the church because, you know, he could have just edited it out, right? Luke could have painted a much more rosy picture of the life of the early church, but he chose to be real. He chose to include this negative example of what was going on. The early church was far from perfect. And I want you to take careful note of the fact that Ananias and Sapphira were not struck dead because they didn't give enough. They were struck dead for lying. This was the greater sin here. And this might have been one of the first examples in the early church of hypocrisy. Nobody likes hypocrisy when you 
Say you believe in one thing and then you act in stark contrast to what you say you believe. And this was not a mistake. Ananias and Sapphira did not make a mistake. They made a choice. Uh, One of the judges I like to watch on YouTube, we all have our YouTube rabbit holes. Mine is court cases. I'm having fun with that these days. Uh, and anyway, there's a judge in Texas who likes, when a, when a, a, a convict or, or when a, a defendant is on trial, uh, the, sometimes he, he or she will say, I made a mistake. And the judge will say, no, you didn't make a mistake, you made a choice. And then she uses an illustration that I'm going to adapt a little bit for our situation. Let's say there was a forecast for rain when you were coming to church this morning. And there was. Uh, and you brought a black umbrella with you. It wasn't raining at the time, so you just carried your umbrella. You sat down, and somebody else sitting next to you also had a black umbrella. When the service was over, you had a roast on. You couldn't stay for coffee. So you looked out the window and saw that it was teeming rain. And you grabbed the umbrella, and out the door you went. And when you put your umbrella up, you realized that it did not have the same logo as your black umbrella did. That was a mistake. You did not intentionally take the other person's black umbrella. You took it by accident. Ananias and Sapphira conspired to do what they did. This was no mistake. They pretended to be generous when in fact they were not. And that's an example of hypocrisy. It used to be that nobody, nobody, nobody wanted the preacher to talk about money or giving, because they thought people outside the church would accuse the church of just wanting their money. But nowadays, people who are newer to Christian faith actually are curious about giving. They're asking honest questions like, why do we give? Where does it go? How much should we give? Well, we give because God first gave to us. This is the promise of Christmas. It's the premise of Christmas. It's the season of giving. We give because God first gave to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Had God not planned from eternity to bring about the birth of his son for our salvation, we would be in the worst of pickles today because we would have no means of being saved from sin. Because we can't do it on our own, right? If you don't remember anything I said about giving today, remember this. You can't save yourself. Only Jesus can do that. We can't be perfect enough, we can't be righteous enough, we can't be good enough to satisfy a holy, perfect, righteous God. The Lord Jesus Christ, however, was holy and perfect and righteous because he was God, as well as being human. So we give to God because God first gave to us. He took the initiative in giving. Where does it go? Well, in the early church, when it was still a fresh movement, there was no overhead. So really, the care and feeding of the apostles, the leadership, uh, was the bulk of it, and then the care of the needy was the rest. As time went on and the church institutionalized, people started going toward greater overhead and capital projects, all with one common purpose, the propagation of the gospel to the world. Now, this was taken to a ridiculous extreme with congregations building ornate structures with gold fixtures and the like, all for the glory of God, of course. 
But ornate chattels started to take priority over the care of souls. It's one reason Martin Luther unwittingly started a revolution. He believed that the paying of indulgences, giving the church money to win souls out of an unbiblical place called purgatory, as if a cash donation could satisfy the justice of God. With all that came a lot of guilt. And guilt does not go hand in hand with generosity. That is, generosity is not driven by guilt, but by love. So the church today receives the generosity of God's people for its overall mission, to which the church is committed and around which it is unified. That often includes staff and physical structures used in the process of equipping God's people for being sent out to share the gospel. The other question that's often asked is, how much should I give? Well, if the story of Ananias and Sapphira teaches us nothing else, it's that whatever our gift is, we should be honest about it. (laughs) In their story, lying about the gift was worse than holding some of it back. But let's step back for a second. In the Old Testament, the standard for giving to the Lord was what was called a tithe, 10%. Uh, So in that agrarian culture, if you took 10 sheep to market, one sheep you saved to give to God. If you took 10 bushels of barley to market, one bushel was saved and given to God. The New Testament, though, does not state that the tithe is obligatory. Nowhere in the New Testament will you see that we must give 10%. The New Testament also, though, does not set aside the tithe. Instead, the New Testament presupposes that the tithe is a starting point. That because God took the initiative in being generous, if we're looking for a benchmark, we can start with 10%. Many people have to work up to that, just like if I were going to run a marathon, I would have to train, probably for the rest of my life, maybe longer. But the New Testament doesn't state that people had to tithe. It does say that we're called to be generous, and that generosity comes through a number of means. One is consistency. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church that on the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Consistency, whether every week or every two weeks or every month, whatever works for your circumstances, uh, helps the church budget and plan as we are unified in our work of ministry to our area. So generosity comes through consistency, and it comes through proportionality. Uh, That is, like the tithe, when we give a portion of what we earn, being proportional makes sense. So the person whose income is $50,000 is not expected to give the same as the person whose income is $100,000, and so forth. It's not about amount, but about proportion. As an aside, it's likely that Ananias and Sapphira were some of the rich folks in the church. Uh, So they may have thought that the bag of money that they laid at the apostles' feet would be sufficiently impressive that they could say it was the whole amount that they got for their property, even though it wasn't. But the Lord knew otherwise, and he made it clear to Peter through the Holy Spirit It was the Holy Spirit who gave Peter the words and the nerve to call out one of the church's top givers. Peter is a hero to pastors everywhere. Nobody likes to be called a hypocrite. 
But Ananias and Sapphira didn't live long enough to think about that. So when you give, give in proportion to your income, whether it's 10% or 5 or 25, you and the Lord discuss what works best for you, but be honest about it. Generosity is also fostered by proper administration. This is why we have an annual meeting. There's only one reason the church has an annual meeting, and that's because the province requires us to have an annual meeting, and the province requires us to have an annual meeting to review last year's financial records to make sure that everything is above board. And, we hope, put to appropriate ministry uses. And this gives God's people confidence in the unity of our fellowship and in the unity of our vision as we seek to encourage people to connect with God and grow in Christ and serve in community. If you saw in the annual report that $100,000 of the money raised to do ministry went to a line item for a new car for the pastor, you might rightly raise your eyebrows and question the actions of the leadership. Now, my Toyota is six years old and has a book value of about 15% of that amount. But if anybody does want to be generous, I can give you the details of the Lexus I'd like to have. (laughs) I'm kidding. But as with the early church, the first place our generosity should be aimed is the local church. If you want to be generous beyond the local church, you have the freedom to do so. But whatever proportion of your income you choose to give to the Lord should come to the local church. Uh, As the Apostle Paul told the churches of Galatia, those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. Where we are fed is where we first contribute. Now, consider this as well. Peter said that Satan entered the life of Ananias and filled his heart. I'm not going to take the time to go down that path today because you uh, want to get to your cake. Uh, But it is true that Satan can infiltrate the life of a follower of Jesus. And I can give you a hundred or more examples of times I have seen that. Be on guard. But how Satan filled Ananias' heart is demonstrated in the fact that he and his wife held back part of their gift. Money had assumed a godlike role in their lives. And in this day and age, it's difficult not to be thinking of money. If you're up to your neck in debt, as many of you are, you watch interest rates very closely. Algorithms pay attention to this too, so you're probably seeing news feeds that cater to that. Uh, You know, with my mother's estate nearly settled, even though I'm probably 10, 20, perhaps 35 years from retirement, I'm working on the Freedom 95 plan. Um, Apple News feeds me articles about retirement planning and financial investing every day. And because the algorithms are tricky, I also get articles about Costa Rica. Because Diana has this notion we could retire there. But she also has this notion we could retire in Fort Erie, Ontario, which has decidedly different weather. So I get notices about all that too. And it's easy to become obsessed with these things. But don't let money be a God. Jesus said you can't serve both God and money, and he was not kidding. 
That doesn't mean you should be irresponsible with your stewardship of what the Lord has given you. But if you need to look at your finances in light of your faith, take the if out of that, you need to look at your finances in light of your faith. Something Ananias and Sapphira clearly did not do. So what do we do with all this? Well, here's first a word to the leadership of the church. To all of us, those of us in leadership, we need to focus on unifying the church around the mission of God because money always follows mission. Money always follows mission, not the other way around. When we are one body in Christ, centered around his mission and how we work it out locally, that encourages the congregation to be generous. It also means that the leadership has to model generosity. Those of us in leadership need to be intentional, consistent, proportional in our giving. Every staff member, every elder, every manager, every leader needs to have an honest conversation with God about consistent, proportional giving. And as the church, we need not to be afraid to talk about giving because heaven knows the cancer society, sick kids, and 1-8-8-8-7-7-CARS-FOR-KIDS They are not shy about asking you for money. So why should the church be? With our willingness to talk about it, should come our honesty with respect to it. Alongside that, none of us should act as though we are influencers because of how much we give. When we trust the leadership, our job is to give, not to lord it over. Uh, Many years ago, a colleague told me a story about the previous Easter Sunday, when uh, the tellers were counting the money after worship, the offering, uh, the, uh, uh, there, there was a check for $10,000 on the plate. This is over 20 years ago. And uh, the people counting the money called the pastor, lead pastor, and said, you know, you, you probably better talk to this guy about what he wants. And so he calls up the guy. What did you have in mind for your $10,000? And the guy said, I had a good year in my business. God's been good to me. It's my job to give it. It's your job to spend it. That's the way it works, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. The attitude with which we should all give. Well, one more thing. It's the season of giving, the season of generosity. And all charitable organizations capitalize on this because we believe in our cause and we know that culturally December is a time when people are more willing to be generous than they might usually be. Why? People will say because it feels good. Even Ebenezer Scrooge figured that out eventually. But why not extend that feeling throughout the year? When generosity becomes a lifestyle for us, we can have that feeling all year. But it's not just about the feels. When we give to God's mission, we're impacting hearts and lives. And that's more than just a good feeling. That's an eternity-changing lifestyle. Be honest. That's amazing. And seriously, be honest. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. All I want for Christmas is to be generous. How about you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking the initiative in giving generously. 
The gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, leaves us in awe that the one who truly lived a perfect life gave it up for us who are far from perfect, so that in him we would experience your righteousness. We pray that you will pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that our faith will encompass every part of us from mind to heart to wallet. Give us grace to be generous for the glory of Christ whose birth we anxiously anticipate. Amen. Maybe you found some encouragement in today's message or perhaps even a challenge. And if you'd like to talk about that, I'd love to hear from you. The connection cards, that's in paulsnobleden.ca slash connect. Or you can speak to me when the service is through, if you're present in the room, or connect with me by email or any other means. I'll be pleased to reach out in the name of our generous God. Thanks for listening. Again, please subscribe, and if you have any questions or would like prayer, go to stpaulsnobleton.ca slash connect and fill in the connection card. I'll be glad to follow up with you. Blessings for your day.